This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call The Funniest Show on Television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 429th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is an Irish-born British stage and screen actor, writer, and director whose abilities range from interpreting Shakespeare as well as any one of his generation to directing populist cinema like Marvel's Thor. A man who has been nominated for an Oscar eight times across a record seven different categories and who has also won three BAFTAs, a Golden Globe, and a Primetime Emmy, and who is now receiving some of the greatest acclaim of his long career for Belfast, an autobiographical film about his childhood as the troubles exploded around him, which he wrote, directed, and produced, and for which he is personally up for Oscars for Best Original Screenplay, Best Director, and Best Picture, Sir Kenneth Branagh. Over the course of our conversation, the 61-year-old and I discussed how he was changed by the real events that he recreated in the film Belfast, what drove him to do so much in his life so quickly, including starting a theater company, writing a memoir, and writing, directing, and starring in a film all by the age of just 28, prompting comparisons to Sir Lawrence Olivier and Orson Welles, and roller coaster like media coverage of him ever since. What it's like to alternate between being the complete auteur of a film and an actor for hire on the films of others, ranging from Robert Altman to Woody Allen to Christopher Nolan. Why he felt that now was the time to tell his own story in Belfast, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Ken, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to speak with you. And uh, I know that some of these questions will be already answered for people who have seen Belfast, but since we always go chronologically on this podcast, just to go back to the very beginning, can you just share where you were born and raised and what your parents did for a living? Yeah, I was uh, born in Belfast in the north of Ireland, and uh, my father was a joiner or carpenter, so a slightly specialist carpenter. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother raised the kids, but she also worked in a fish and chip shop. She also worked in the mill in uh, in, in in Belfast, which was a great um, town for creating linen and stuff, so there were many mills for a while. Um, and yeah, that's, so, uh, that's where I was uh, born, and I lived with them there until I was nine. And of course, Belfast centers on these uh, events that unfolded, I guess, August 1969, where, you know, your your way of life was suddenly very different. And I wonder how you would describe to someone who hasn't 
seen the film or who you're just meeting, you know, how was life before the, the troubles broke out where you were? Well, we lived in a street uh, which had a mixture of Protestants and Catholics, which are the two uh, main religions in the north of Ireland. And historically, there is dispute between them. But at this time, uh, although a civil rights movement was building that was uh, putting the case for the inequalities between some of the employment and economic opportunities between those two groups, in our street, there was, I would say, harmony between both uh, religions. It was the same sort of economic opportunity. We all lived in the same size houses, which were small. Um, most families, if they had employment with the parents, it was more or less the same. Um, and so there was a sense that life was very settled. Um, the weather in Northern Ireland can be cold and sometimes rainy. So we lived a lot of life out on the street uh, and to, you know, sort of run and jump outside of those small houses. And um, the sense of a real neighborhood where you knew everybody was very strong. Uh, I felt as though with my parents both having a large, large number of siblings and me therefore having, uh, as it turned out, lots of cousins, that it seemed to me from a nine-year-old's perspective anyway that you, that you were related to half of Belfast <laughs> and, and you went to school with the other half. Right. But you, you knew... You really did know everybody in the street. Lots of grown-ups. It was very... It was... Um, you know, that sort of, at least in my, some, in the idyllic version of it, it wasn't idyllic, but it was a home, definitely. But the, there was a sense that it was a, often the feeling of another beautiful day in the neighborhood. Yeah, right. You know, you definitely, for me, the key was a sense that I had, that I couldn't have ever articulated then, but subsequently has made me feel, gosh, that's when I really knew who I was and where I belonged. And you have said that after the, uh, you know, events that are chronicled so powerfully in the film where, you know, really just one day sort of out of the blue, everything changes. You've said, quote, from that point onward, a whole series of identities and masks was constructed, close quote. I know not the least being that you guys relocated to Reading and uh, you're, again, I guess nine or at that point, 10. Your Irish accent was not going to endear yourself maybe to people there. Uh, so do you think in a way that was the beginning of learning how to be someone other than yourself. I think it couldn't help but have a huge influence. Um, my goal, I suppose, once I got to away from the north uh, of Ireland was was just not to stick out. That's um, from from a sense of absolutely knowing where you belonged we then became one small nuclear family in a place where we didn't sound the same and we didn't when we also we'd kind of moved up a notch we were definitely bang in middle working class and then we moved up I would say in terms of the size of the house to a sort of lower middle class position and we didn't really know I mean, this sounds ridiculous, you'll laugh at me, but people ate things like pasta. We we just hadn't come across this. And then this other weird thing, somebody introduced the idea, idea of an avocado pear. <laughs> I mean, these were these were like things that, you know, Martians would eat. Right. Um, we knew, for us, spaghetti came out of a tin. Right, it was called right. Alphabetti spaghetti. <laughs> and it was and it was mainly, and it tasted like baked beans. And... Uh, so with everything that uh, was was new was kind of throwing. So we wanted to just blend in. So after a year or two, that became the case with the accent. So um, I think that yes, I would say the biggest thing that that had an impact with the um, 
the change around that meant that a peaceful street in Belfast that was a playground was turned into a fortress was that internally, in a way that psychically, I don't know that I've ever really, you know, recovered from, you are on guard. You just were aware that if things could change so profoundly, so quickly, they might always do. So I think it turned me to some extent from a participant in my life to an observer of my life. Uh, It made me speak less. Um, There was a point when I was 12, 13, when my parents said, why don't you ever bring any friends around? I didn't particularly think of myself as a lonely kid. I found my groove at school. I was lucky in the school I went to in the end. I got bullied for a bit to begin with, uh, but it wasn't to do with being Irish. It was to, to do with actually a moment when I the, the kid from Belfast came out of his shell a bit and I started being a little bit funny. Then you stick out and then people pick <laughs> on you, you know? So then I just went right back into that right. shell. So adolescence, they, my parents just thought, well, he's this is the guy who... At the, what, what they realized what at about 13, I just started reading and I never stopped reading. Mm-hmm. And I know that around that age, there was, uh, you've written a, a autobiography and, and said in other places that there was a time, I think <laughs> you were thinking a talk show host or a book critic. I know you did some reviews locally for children's books, but when did, you know, the idea of performing, was it something in school? Was it something perhaps, you know, being brought to see something or, or something else that made you think I might actually be comfortable doing something like that in front of others? Well, the, the seeds were planted in this, in Belfast, you see that the family go to the cinema and you see the way the boy is transported by movies. And then you see this one trip to the theater. And that was true of my life. One trip in December of 1969 to see Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol with a memorable Scrooge and an even more memorable Marley by a great Irish actor called Joseph Tomalty. You'll know him from various films, including Carol Reed's influential on me film, Odd Man Out, also set in Belfast, (laughs) photography by Robert Kraske. Um, Carol Reed, just before Third Man, very, very influential in terms of the look. And Joseph Tomalty was in that. I worked with his daughter, Frances, when I did my first uh, Shakespeare pieces. And those experiences to that kind of um, transformative entertainment were, were, were vivid because they were so... Um, they held me so so completely, captured my imagination. They were so... Um, um, they occupied every part of me, but it did not, it could not translate into you could do this. There was just no, that part of my brain couldn't make that connection. But I think part of discovering acting at school, when basically, because they ran out of numbers, I, who was one of the, I played football and rugby, when they ran out of people who were going to people the school play, they just came and sort of uh, said, you know, we need volunteers, you, you and you. And and uh, so I, I, um, I, I first was struck by this possibility when I was in a production of uh, Oh, What a Lovely War. Richard Attenborough then made a film of this famous Joan Littlewood Theatre Workshop production, which was very much about the pity of war. It was many, 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 many different episodic scenes. So in the course of doing the school production, I played an American and an English sergeant major and a cockney and a posh person and... Um, So all of those different hats were appealing. And I think that although, as I mentioned, a kind of kind of loner in general in life and at school at that point, 
the escape into those characters, I think, exercised that Belfast lad. I think that suddenly he was led, the genie was let out of the bottle there again. And so the kid that I was that played happily and fully and, and participated in the life of the street, that kid who went missing for about five years, suddenly found an escape route in performance uh, that found that the, the sort of imaginative experience of my life in Belfast, which was absorbing lots of street culture, people singing, dancing, telling stories, all of that, um, I think, lay dormant, but did want to be expressed. And so it seemed like I could find the person that at least the, the center part of me really was, was authentically true to being through uh, these other characters and, uh, and slowly began to realize, well, there may, perhaps there is a way of doing this in, in the big wide world. Well, in fact, wasn't there a teacher or something who gave you encouraging feedback? I mean, you don't just go from nothing to rata. Somebody has to say, this is worth pursuing, right? Yeah. And I did have one teacher. I mean, subsequently, I wondered whether it was, it was responsible advice <laughs> uh, because, you know, we were lots of, um, you, you'll have been in school plays, I'm sure. And we, they're often very memorable experiences. They're ensemble, collaborative things. You can have very bonding experiences and it can lead you for a moment to feeling, hey, this is good. I'd love to do this full time. But I had one teacher who at a school assembly pointed out that that uh, people should go and see this play because there's a kid in there who really could do this for a living. And I leant forward. I thought, really, who is that? <laughs> Absolutely didn't cross my mind for one second that he was talking about me. And then I realized afterwards, and then that was a light going on. And uh, and I think, he, again, he threw it away. Said, but well, but if how would you do that? So he said, drama school and walked away. Mm -hmm. So back then it wasn't a question of, you know, beep, drama, <laughs> let me put that into yeah, the machine and see what comes out. <laughs> that was, well, go down to the library and what, and so the, 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 uh, the obsessive pursuit of how you could possibly do this for a living began. How did your folks feel about it as you, you know, inched more towards this kind of a, a pursuit? Perplexed. <laughs> they were perplexed slash baffled. You know what they felt? Maybe this is very natural in parents. Um, and maybe in Irish parents, um, if we'd been back in Belfast, I'm pretty sure my father would have encouraged me to come into the business with him too. He was apprenticed as a joiner from the age of 14 to 19. He did five years to become this kind of um, master apprentice and then practiced enough to become really a sort of master. Uh, that didn't exist, but they, they, what they felt was that they couldn't help me. They just did not know this world at all. And as far as they were concerned, it was something they read about in the tabloids it was Hollywood Babylon, you know, it was, that's what they, it was, you know, drugs and <laughs> depravity and, right. um, and everything that you, you, you would wish your child could be sort of steered through, you know, and have a guiding hand. They couldn't give that. So they were very, very worried. And even, I mean, before Hollywood was a, a focus in any way for you, it was going to be the theater. Had you had exposure to any professional theater. I'd read one thing about maybe camping out in order to get a taste of it at, at Royal Shakespeare. That's right. Yeah. I went up to, and that was, it was interesting for this, as I say, on one level, lonerish kind of uh, early adolescent. I, and therefore shy to a degree, I would say. Um, I say partly because I was guarded. I just didn't want the world to blow up again, you yeah, know? Of course. So I, I kept, I, I was careful. 
But when it came to the pursuit of acting, I became less careful. So for me, it was a big deal to hitchhike from my home in Reading up the A34 to uh, Stratford-upon-Avon with a tent that I'd paid for myself uh, 20 weeks at 99 pence per week for uh, eventually this 20-pound tent. Uh, not very effective. It was reasonably <laughs> cheap, as you can imagine, yeah. if I could afford it with my newspaper around uh, pocket money, uh, but it leaked. Uh, but about a mile outside the town of Stratford, I camped and I went and I stood for return tickets to see three or four plays that summer of 78. And uh, Jonathan Price, who many people will know from his fine acting work, he was there playing Petruchio in The Taming of the Shrew. So Michael Horden, famous British film character actor, was playing Prospero in The Tempest. Ian Charlson, a marvellous you know, star of Chariots of Fire and who died far too early, uh, was playing the role of uh, Tranio in The Taming of the Shrew and in The Tempest in the role of Grumio David Suchet, soon to be a formidable, the greatest of all Poirots, I, I humbly say. Uh, but but um, so... I queued for tickets. I saw them. I went and had a backstage tour. I generally hung about the place starry-eyed. I went to the Dirty Duck pub uh, where I would have my little shandy, my half a pint of shandy, the beer and lemonade, and uh, and I would listen to actor talk. And I would be amazed, amazed, amazed. So that was the beginning. And also understanding, wow, for a shy guy who'd never have dared to go hitchhiking and then you're camping on your own, you're only 16, just coming up 17, and... and uh, um, it was, you could see, I could see that this thing was taking me over. Now, Rada, I mean, is, it's no gimme to say the least to get in there. I think the, the odds are just tremendously against somebody getting accepted. You uh, audition, you get in, and I wonder if you can just talk about how that time, if you can uh, assess how it might have changed you. I know, in fact, just as a side note that might be worth bringing in here, that was the time of your only interaction of sorts with Mr. Olivier, right? Yes, um, that's right. The, the, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art was the only place regarding acting training that my parents would ever have heard of. It had royal at the front, and that meant something <laughs> to them. And so the idea that you could get in there was in a world where they really didn't know what to make of their boy trying to become an actor. It would be the beginnings of some sense of assurance for them that you might be of a kind of quality that might allow you to have a career and, you know, pay the rent yeah. and, you know, et cetera, do just simply have a living and a, a life. Um, it was many rounds of auditions and then a big wait to see whether I could have the funding. Um, and it was, uh, it did everything that I hoped. It had a charismatic principal, a man called Hugh Crupwell, uh, and, uh, and they encouraged the students to participate in every kind of drama, including early on the plays of Chekhov and in doing one, Three Sisters, in which I played Chebutikin, a man in his 50s or 60s, stumped. I wrote to Sir Laurence Olivier. In those days, there was a book called Who's Who, and actors would have their, you know, entry, hobbies, etc., and at the end, their address. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? So Laurence Olivier had willingly put his address in the who's who. And of course, I wrote to him and, and I had this dictated um, letter back, which encouraged me. Uh, he saying that it's not my business really to give advice to actors. My, my, um, 
my advice is, it, such as it is, is to have a bash and hope for the best. <laughs> uh, and it said, dictated by the Lord Olivier, but signed in his absence by Shirley Luke, who was his, <laughs> who was his long-term sort of amanuensis. Um, this was a, an absolute thrill to me. I was 18, 19 years old, so that it, if it had even come across his mental space, I was thrilled. Uh, those crumbs from the greats. And we, we did encounter quite a number, Sir John Gielgud, who was very involved with the Academy. I, I, I got to have some time with there. And uh, generally, the Academy could soak up every hope and wish and tryout that you could possibly provide. Uh, so for me back then, as a young actor, it was a tremendous playground and proving ground for, for a life in the theatre. And coming out of there, I know within a matter of weeks, you were on the West End, you are on television. But I, I guess I wondered because uh, also we should note, and I don't know where this fell, maybe it was in the middle of Rada, your film debut, we, a movie that you mentioned a few minutes ago, Chariots of Fire wins Best Picture. That's a pretty cool, uh, I don't think it was a, a major uh, part, but it was, <laughs> so just like uh, how early on was the idea that not only stage, but screen acting would be of interest to you? How, how early on had you decided on that? To be honest, screen acting, no. Going to the cinema, yes. Chariots of Fire was interesting. Uh, I was halfway through my training. Uh, a note went up on the on the notice board at the front door. Uh, students wanted for um, part in movie, 10 pounds per day for three days um, and meals. There you go. So there you go. So 30 quid and three, three meals, two breakfasts and two lunches as a student. Well, I think I'll do that. And then I had one uh, example of uh, what showbiz was going to be like, particularly in cinema. So there's 200 of us in the courtyard at Eton College where we're to be the crowd watching Eric Rockets Abrahams chase around the um, the quad. And the first assistant um, got the loud hailer out and said would it, they had improvised a little bit down where the start of the race would take place. And he called out to these two or 300 students, including myself, uh, would anyone here like a line? <laughs> And I mean, I literally didn't have time to put my hand up before I was on the ground. I was on, my nose was in the cobbles of Eton College and people were running over me. And the crush down there, to get those lines, I suddenly realized, wow, there's a there's an image of what showbiz is going to be like. And I was way, way down the end of the queue. And uh, if you see this scene just before that race takes place, people have, oh, you've got rockets on your shoes, Abrahams, and all that kind of thing. And these things were distributed that day. I didn't get there, but I do have a sneaky look at the clock at the beginning. <laughs> and I think if you had a microscope and, uh, and an interest, uh, you'd find it. It all comes back to but, that. But yeah. for me, it was always going to be theatre, cinema, even then, watching it fascinated and always going, always going to the movies, but I never thought I'd be in them. Interesting. Well, I guess to that point, you out of school were pretty soon with Royal Shakespeare Company. But then there was this interesting, I guess, real major turning point in your life where Two years or so into that, you leave and start your own operation, Renaissance Theater Company. And uh, I just want to note Derek Jacoby, Judy Dench, you had an amazing group that you assembled for a guy still in his mid-20s to be putting together, you know, anything like this is incredible. And giving actors a chance to direct, which I wonder if it was in the back of your head that that's where your own path would go eventually. But what do you think it was that motivated you to not only step away from Royal Shakespeare, which is a, you know, probably in the minds of a lot of people, a risky thing to do, but also to then launch your own thing. I was blessed to be at the Royal Shakespeare Company because they, they, um, 
had an incredible resource. They had these seasons at Stratford um, where you do four or five plays. It was fantastic training for an actor. They'd come into town. You would be seen by people. There were other opportunities for employment. It was a golden time for that company. I was not great at being in institutions. That was the feeling I had um, that I, I, I loved about uh, theatre companies, the blur of um, roles. I enjoyed when when I, when writers, real writers for new plays, were in the room. I loved seeing the major contribution of major actors to the sort of direction of a piece or the way a company was led. I was aware Shakespeare was an actor and just in, in context of the time would have been some form of director or producer. The, there would be a lot of blurred lines between the key storytelling roles and I enjoyed that. In a very, very structured, institutionalized environment, it wasn't quite, that wasn't quite as available. I guess I was a, a young man in a hurry. I guess I was impatient, but I, I just... I felt as though there was another way to do things. And um, I think ignorance was bliss. I, I didn't understand quite um, how things... I, c I could see an end result, didn't always know how to get there, but felt maybe I could find the people who would who would be able to uh, to get there. And um, I had the sense that... The, that, that um, being in the center of it, being, being having your sleeves rolled up and, and, and experiencing it, um, doing rather than hearing and talking was something that would, would guide me. And um, I then worked both with Derek Jacobi and Judy Dench as an actor and Geraldine McEwen. And uh, I had seen them provide insight that to me was very directorial. They had both um, imaginative remarks to make to actors. They knew how to talk to them, but they also had a very strong sense of how the story of the play and thematically what might want to come out of things. A specific example would be Judy Dench. Um, and, and I could shamelessly say that this eventually informed the film that I made of it. Uh, it may be simple enough and it may not even be original, but she did it with such beauty. The idea of how at the beginning of Much Ado About Nothing, heat, the effect of heat, the effect of summer languor, and then really letting everybody in that cast understand how um, potent it would be to meet a group of women, in this case, who had been away from a group of men who had been at war and who would come back into this languorous, hot, hotter than hot summer atmosphere would create hijinks. That once she planted that so well pictorially in her theatre production, but also in the minds of the actors, I thought that she she really made a, a she she let me understand the play in, in a way that was ultimately a great influence on the film version. And so um, I I felt. I don't know where, I didn't feel like this was hubris, um, but maybe it was impatience, that I was watching that resource untapped. Mm -hmm. And um, and and so it, when they came, Derek Jacobi, Judy Dench, Geraldine McEwen, to direct us, they came with such um, uh, energy and such appetite that I suppose what I wanted away from the structures of the institution was to feel this slightly more maverick um 
to be, to put it in a corny Hollywood sense, although it was never corny to me because I remember seeing these films in Belfast, Mickey and Judy. Yeah, right. We could do the show right here. Yeah, yeah. I used to love the end yeah. of those musicals, or right three quarters of the way through, when he said, "You know what? We just heard that. You know, Mister J. Abraham Schuchenheyer, his his train is going to stop at the station for just one hour. Now, if that happens, when we do the third act in the barn, why don't we get some of the kids together? We could rehearse this afternoon. Then you go to the sequence. The barn yeah. is like in aircraft hangar. There are 5,000 people. It's the most complicated dance number you've ever seen. Right. And then the guy who was on his way through, I was on my way to, you know what? I'm taking you kids to Broadway. <laughs> and I, some yeah. primitive part of me thought it can happen. I was completely sold on, but they're just normal kids like me. Yeah. And they're passionate <laughs> and they love doing it. He loves her and he's all, and she's falling on them. And some, that, that. I'm afraid, I wish I could tell you, was I had a grand plan, Scott, but I, I didn't. I got, uh, that kind of thing got under my skin and I thought, well, this happens to be Shakespeare, but maybe we can do the same thing. Well, and, and I don't know how early this was envisioned by you, but wasn't your first entry into film with Henry V an outgrowth of Renaissance theater, right? I mean, mm. this is largely the same cast, the mm. same group of people. Um, I guess the big question though is, how does somebody who is at that point, I think 28, you know, obviously you'd, you'd, you'd establish yourself on stage, but to get uh, financing for a film in which you're going to not only act, but also direct yourself, which is not easy for anyone who's, even if they've been directing for a long time, not, not only that, but a Shakespearean work that has been made into a classic film by Sir Lawrence decades earlier, it's sort of the, I think most people's inclination is don't touch a, a classic. <laughs> um, so how did that come about that you suddenly are now a filmmaker? Maverick producer Stephen Evans, who was at that point hadn't produced a film. He had been in the city of London. Uh, he had, he'd been a, a sort of freelance stockbroker. He had a lot of friends who were possibly interested in making an investment in film. Financing, however, was harem scarum right up to the last minute. I remember uh, Sir David Putnam was involved for our Lord Putnam as he now is. And he I remember called me in uh, with a month to go before shooting. He got involved for a bit, but he just felt that the the finance wasn't strong enough. And he said, I got to tell you, he said, just like I'm looking at you now, Scott, and he said, uh, and I'm 27, 27 years old. And he says, Ken, I've got to tell you with absolute certainty, this film will collapse either two weeks before or two weeks after principal photography begins and your movie career will be over in its entirety. Uh, I said, well, gosh, gosh, well, I very much hear what you're saying, sir, and I'm very, thank you for being involved up to this point, and I'm grateful for your candor. And it was a great challenge. I didn't go away thinking, how dare he? I thought, well, I'm sure he means and knows what he says. He's been there many times. Um, Stephen took this as a tremendous incentive, and uh, but it was with it was with ten days to go, I think, uh, that finally. Maybe it was even a week to go. And I had a lot of people who were in it at that stage. I was also praying that I was not going to have to make the call to Paul Schofield saying, you know, you said we were going to do the film. So uh, um, and then uh, I remember there was a funny moment where uh, uh, Stephen presented me with what felt like three telephone directories worth of things to sign. And I went through one and I thought, Pla 
bloody hell, I'm being paid, you're paying me £80,000 to do this. He said, yeah, hold on a minute. And then I got to the one at the bottom, which said, and I offer my entire fee back to the production <laughs> with no further call. There is right. no requirement to recompense me for this thing. The small print, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, the small print was in front of me. It right. became the large print. But, um, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, we, we uh, somehow we managed to, to hold on. He got people who, who took that risk and, and all those other people hung on in there. Judy Dench hung in, Ian Holm, Paul Schofield, the late, great Michael Williams and um, Robert Stevens. And uh, in fact, we had more Henry V's in that than you could stake, shake a stick at. Uh, it was quite something. Well, and just as a, a quick kind of aside, I'm, I'm curious, you would reach, talk about, you know, again, uh, both smart and chutzpah, as, as my uh, people say. I mean, you reached out to Prince Charles. Yeah, yeah. There was a there was a moment when I was playing the part in the in the theater where uh, again I, I do think it's ignorance. You're not really thinking. It's a tunnel vision about the creativity, and I knew. And I think this is another thing I carried from Belfast. Who the Bejesus am I, nine year old working class North Belfast Protestant, to be playing the heir to the throne of England and then the King of England? And I thought, well, how do you find out about what that's like? Can you find a way to speak to the, uh, the, the heir to the throne? I was voicing these concerns over a pint with a friend of mine who said, well, actually, you know, I do know someone who knows someone. He said, if you're serious and if you will be discreet. Um, and so he arranged a number of intermediary meetings. I was very clearly screened. But eventually I met uh, Prince Charles, who was very open, particularly about the burdens of uh, expectation, and uh, the fact of isolation. Um, and this to me was very interesting. It was interesting also to hear how he spoke very quietly. Um, people in authority often do. They don't need to raise their voices. Uh, the degree of thoughtfulness, the degree of detail, watching them when they deal with large numbers of people, how they um, particularize and individualize and can make moments memorable. When, as he commented, uh, his experience was that that was partly born out of a need, an additional need to connect with people who are often dazzled by the job title, as it were, and who, as he would say, until maybe a couple of minutes before he would leave the charitable event or the, you know, the meeting with, with whoever it might be, it was only then that they became themselves. So he, he had to make an extra effort to do that connection and accept that there would always be a separation. That does something to somebody's insides. Mm -hmm. It does something to the way they then make decisions about other people's welfare. Built in, and I could see it in every fabric of his being, a sense of duty, a sense of privilege, a sense of um, sacrifice for all of the, um, as it were, first-class life mm -hmm. that they lead. Uh, they know it's an accident of birth and one that they need to meet by a commitment to serving others. And I saw in his case a, a sort of genuine expression of that. Um, and it doesn't matter whether you're a monarchist, anti-monarchist or whatever. What I, I felt that what I was hoping to find in the character of Henry V, because I believed it was there as Shakespeare wrote it, was this sort of uh, spiritual or character confirmation of at least some parts of it. And that that carried the, the, the sort of interior of the performance into what I was trying to do. So for me, it was it was an invaluable experience. Amazing. And uh, I will bring back a, a not particularly glamorous memory, which I believe is the case that on while you were in L.A. doing a series of, of 
plays and staying at the not especially uh, glamorous, but very familiar to many people, uh, Oakwood Apartments. Correct. <laughs> you find out that you at, again, 28 are a nominee for both Best Director and Best Actor at the Oscars for your film debut. That in itself is pretty incredible. But I, I do, I, I wonder how it changed things for maybe the better and perhaps in some ways the worse, because I would imagine professionally it probably opened up some doors, but I also think it, I, I'd be curious to know if, if you felt that there was any sort of a backlash at that early in age. I know you've, it just seems going through all the archives and reading everything that's ever been written about you to prep for this. I just see this pattern of people hailing you as the, the next great thing. Then you do something great. Then they find the next time is they're, they're going to knock you down for something. And then it's this remarkable comeback <laughs> afterwards. And then it just rinse and repeat. And I, I don't know, maybe that was, was that the beginning of that? Well, I mean, it's an interesting uh, way of observing it. Um, I know that it was really a great surprise. Sam Goldwyn Jr. Uh, took, rang me when the Golden Globe nominations that year came out and we didn't have any. He said, Ken, just to let you know, it's not going to happen for you at the Academy Awards. It's just that it won't, it can't happen given what's gone on. Um, and then he he and I, we were all as surprised as we, we, we had no, for us, it was already a, a kind of the most extraordinary thing to imagine. But it did happen and I think was hard to process. You know, it was very, um, very, 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 very exciting. Uh, we were on the road with these plays and uh, I, we, were, we were performing in Japan on the night of the Academy Awards and oh, wow. flying in and, you know, just m meeting the people in the various categories. I was in a category with Tom Cruise and mm -hmm. my friend Daniel Day-Lewis, mm -hmm. Oliver Stone won that year in the director's category for uh, Born on the Fourth of July. And to even be in, in that company company, um, and I'm not 30 at this stage, was quite um, throwing. I think, I can't speak for how the world viewed it, because I think you might be right in terms of the way certain patterns went. But from my point of view, I think probably it put pressure on. I think um, I certainly enjoyed that moment. How could you not? How could you not feel pride. But I think I probably felt a pressure. I felt a pressure to uh, meet the expectation that had been set up by that thing. And back then, the cultural memory is so short now, but back then, um, comparisons for anybody who made an emergent splash like that would be with former greats and with some of their um, with the darker paths they trod. So Orson Welles would be brought up yes. a lot by well, talking of the Wunderkind of Wunderkinds, yes. 25, Citizen Kane, generally regarded as the greatest film ever made. And then what happened? Um, and, and, and I think people were offering us, so what do you reckon, Ken? Is that ahead of you? And just to make it a little more uh, eerie, didn't you guys shoot some of Henry V on a soundstage that he used for Citizen Kane. Well, in fact, um, not Henry V, but, oh, but my second movie, oh, my, yes, my, which yes, was yes, Dead, Dead yes, Again, yes. on the Gower Street yes. side of the Paramount lot. And yeah, I remember that was a <laughs> that was quite a moment walking onto that soundstage. And a, uh, Charlie McGuire was the production manager. <laughs> Charlie had been, he'd been everywhere, seen everything. 
I said, what's, and where, where have, you know, just give me an idea of what's been shot here. I had, you know, a little movie called Citizen Kane. Yeah, Orson was, I was just a kid. I was just a kid at that time. And he was, no, he was an impressive guy, impressive guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other person who there were obviously going to be, uh, who there were a lot of comparisons made with was Olivier, who was, I think he died the year that movie came out Correct. in 89. Now, I just wonder, just to let's just lay out the, the facts here, right? You played the same great roles on that he did on stage, mm -hmm. started your own theater company, remade the two great Shakespearean films that he's most associated with, also married another great actress, and much later even played him himself. What came first, the comparisons or the interest in, you know, it would be totally understandable if one wanted to emulate. If you're going to emulate somebody, that's a good person to emulate. But do you think that? Do you get what I'm saying? Like, wh wh were you were you always kind of using him as a role model, or was that something that other people were projecting? I think that it's hard for people to understand these days how in the in the generation I grew up with and those before how dominant a figure Laurence Olivier was in the lives of anybody who wanted to be an actor in any form of the classical tradition but let alone the classical tradition in in in, in acting remember this was one of for a time the biggest movie stars in the world a ways back, 1940, 41, he's starring in Wuthering Heights and Rebecca and Pride and Prejudice. I mean, he's he's a world number one movie star. He's a man who wins uh, the Oscar for Henry V. He wins the Oscar for Hamlet. He forms the, the Great Britain's National Theatre in which he performs. I mean, legendary doesn't cover what Olivier was and those achievements. So you couldn't not be aware of the kind of guiding star. So um, I think that he was an inspiration in terms of uh, attempting the impossible, I suppose. He was very brave in his own life, in his performing life. He always did his own stunts, tons of accidents and things. So he had a kind of, he had a gambler's streak that I admired. I was inspired by that, but I knew, I mean, he was also a phenomenally handsome fella. He was a sort of classically good looking guy. Although interestingly, he had his, uh, he had these um, his own episodes in Hollywood. He came out in 1924 uh, uh, or 29, I think it was, and had a miserable time. It was sacked from Queen Christina playing opposite uh, Greta Garbo. I mean, had as a young man, as a, you know, very sort of virile, young, handsome leading man, uh, things that, I, I, that side of him also inspired me in the sense that he'd, he wasn't born with, you know, sort of golden cape or anything. He'd, he'd sort of had to get knocked back and then, you know, find his way back. So, but his, he was an inspiration to many, many people and certainly to me, not to try and copy the career, but uh, the, the classics in any case had, had um, definitely, you know, made their mark on me, these plays. But again, I go back, Scott, to Belfast. And if you've, if you've kind of made it up, I, I would have had a different life. I'd have been a different person if I'd stayed in, in, in Ireland. So once you come away and you're really a series of, maybe like, maybe we're all like this, you know, we're different things to different people, different people to different things. And um, if one of the biggest surprises you have is that you end up being an actor, uh, you can't go home and say, hey, mom, dad, what do you think? What do you think? Hamlet, Henry V, you can't, there's no, the, the references you have are out there. And one of them was Olivier by example, by work ethic. Um, and and 
but but I would say the same of Wells later on, Clint Eastwood, you know, for this uh, ability to just, I always admired the people who just kept going yeah. as well. And that was, I think, has been a, I've been fortunate that, um, as you say, sometimes it's been boom or bust in my career, but I've somehow one way or another thus far, and I'm touching wood as I say <laughs> this, have managed to keep going. Well, and and just as a, another case in point of, of that, your first five movies you both directed and starred in, the fifth, I believe, was Frankenstein, right? This was with Coppola producing, De Niro co-starring opposite you. You have said that the kind of meanness with which some people responded to that was pretty brutal and unavoidably affecting. Mm-hmm. Um, I wondered, was that in some ways, a, a, it doesn't seem like it fits in with the other things you were doing around that time. Was that a case of how do you say no to Coppola wanting to do something at, or to working with De Niro, even if that material is maybe not where you you were most at home or was it because again you, you you talk you know talking about this ability to rebound from anything right after that is hamlet which people loved mm-hmm. and um and which you did in such a creative different way than anyone else had done it but i guess i just wonder was there a lesson along the way of of what hollywood the the perils or the pitfalls of how you pick things to do in hollywood well i do think it's a very interesting question I think that you're right that it's very, very intoxicating if if the movie that is getting you that kind of offer is much ado about nothing. Yes. You think, blimey, you know, this is, uh, which with which we had given the, the subject matter really a very strong success. Um, it did maybe back then $60, $70 million around the world, which was really quite something for a, a movie that cost $10 million and... and uh, you know, Shakespeare comedy, there was no real, not many markers for why that should have worked. But, um, and so, yes, it was very intoxicating to, to, to feel as though that that piece of material also maybe combined two things that I thought maybe where I meet in the middle, a Hollywood and kind of star-driven demand with my own interest in the classics. And I'd describe Mary Shelley's Frankenstein as one of those. I think probably the mistake there was to be in it. I think um, uh, I remember there was one mention early on about in the trailer. They said he gets his shirt off seventeen times in the trailer. <laughs> I promise you that I did not <laughs> intend for that to be the case, and I was not in charge of the trailers. But I think people found it was possibly vain, glorious. They you just think if you, it's sometimes it's hard for people not. I think it still is for people to go. He directed and he's in it. He must be an egomaniac. Um, if he's directed it, he's in it. He's taking his shirt off, so now he thinks he looks rather good as well. <laughs> then I think that's probably thumpable um, for most people. So I think um, I, I saw the film again recently because there was a digital remastering that I was involved with in terms of color and, and sound and everything. And I was I was proud of a lot of the film, but I could see why for some people it wouldn't work. And also, I guess if I can talk about it dispassionately, and I don't know that I can, but I'll try to, The um, for some people there is a, um, you know, that I think that maybe for something like that, you you want potentially, I guess, a movie star. And I think that, that some might have regarded me as a movie actor or just an actor where that absolute sort of compulsion to watch 
regardless um, that carries something way beyond what the story and everything might be doing uh, is at play. But it could also, Scott, be as simple as ultimately not many people thought the film was very good. And so, you know, the the, the gods will decide that. But it was definitely... um, a huge honor to be asked to be directing something that Coppola was producing. It was a huge honor to be acting opposite De Niro. And again, I don't want to sort of harp on it too much, but for that kid from Belfast to be in that situation, wild, wild. (laughs) And on that level, you go, well, why would I say no? No, of course, you absolutely. (laughs) Well, because you might have a massive flop. Well, you know. uh, Small price to pay. Well, it's a price to pay, but it's (laughs) like it's it's, uh, the experience is all, you know. And on the whole, I believe that in this life, you don't regret the the things you do. You regret the things you didn't do. Well, I want to just kind of group uh, uh, several of the things that you did in the ensuing years because I – they're, to me, they're all very different, and it's unusual to see somebody do these uh, so many d- different things. Acting for other auteurs, I guess, you know, we've got Altman with The Gingerbread Man, Woody Allen with Celebrity, many others. Is it weird to go from being in total control of a project, you're the writer, director, producer, actor, to suddenly serving somebody else's vision? Not for me. I, I found it, and, and I find it liberating. I, uh, I get very, very excited at this unique uh, position we, we spoke about before we, 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 we started this, uh, the chance Danny Boyle pointed it out to me of how lucky I am to be able to watch other directors at work, and I continue to feel that. Um, I also think, I don't think I'm fooling myself here, that I, I've become... Uh, you know, a nice actor to work with because I, you know, I my job is to serve them and the story and and not, I have no interest in being anything other than fascinated by what they're doing. I'm not going to second guess them. It's not, you know, particularly people at these at this level, it's a really, a, it's fascinating. Um, and continues, by the way, right through to the Christopher Nolan collaborations, Dunkirk and now Oppenheimer, right? I mean, yeah. another guy who um, I'm sure there are some things to, pick up from watching well more than some (laughs) things for sure Uh, the combination of uh, passion and expertise and as you always see with the great ones the sense of excitement as if it were the first time um that 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 passionate desire that sustained creativity and and joyful excitement i would say I, i i've uh uh, you're so lucky to be able to get to make any film. I think that I see the excitement in a filmmaker like Christopher Nolan when they, they get a chance to do another one, when they have accrued yet more experience, when their passion for the project is that much longer uh, in having been with them. And um, it's a very, very, very great atmosphere to be around. And uh I do feel myself to be something of an eternal student. I read a lot about the movies. I read a lot. I like you. I'm very interested in cinema and theatrical history. When I first came here to make Dead Again, um, which is partly about a a German composer, an emigre who came here like so many did in the 30s and 40s uh, to make great art in in the popular Hollywood cinema, Um, uh, Delbert Mann, you know, Thomas Mann, um, uh, endless uh, musicians and and stage directors. Just Billy Wilder, for sure. Um, 
that, uh, that, that always amazed me. People, people hear friends of mine say, oh, we've got no history in this town. I said, oh, no, you've got history big time. And it isn't just the history of people coming here from other places, but there's a lot of that. And, uh, and so that part of me, that is just a born and natural learner, voracious uh, reader and observer of uh, people and things, um, that that part of me is 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 uh, uh, in heaven when working uh, at the at the service of uh, talented people. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or twenty four seven in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The next of these groupings is uh, the great work that you've done on the small screen before it became, you know, necessarily the the in thing to do. I mean, I think you helped to make it that way with Conspiracy, Shackleton, Warm Springs, Wallander, stuff that was edgier that, you know, it used to, I think, be that if you were going from the big screen to the small screen, you were doing something wrong. This is obviously, uh, it seems like a very different situation and it seems like you've it, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. It looks like those are some of the projects you've enjoyed the most. Well, you follow where your enthusiasm is lit up. It's very hard to imagine being more affected by something than the screenplay for Conspiracy. Um, and that was uh, uh, directed by Frank uh, Pearson, um, himself a very distinguished uh, um, screenwriter. And uh, the story of the Vancey Conference, 15 guys around a table led by Reinhard Heydrich, who decide in this 90-minute meeting in real time to enact the final solution, having discovered the um, facility in Upper Silesia called Auschwitz that could process um, so many Jewish people per hour. The, the appalling, appalling horror of that was served up in such a riveting way by the reconstruction of it. It was definitely a project that would be hard for the cinema to produce, but television gave it a natural home that had you lean into it. It was a very difficult thing to do, very hard sort of place to inhabit, um, as the subject matter would, would undoubtedly lead anyone to and when it's a hard watch for anybody. But those those works you mention were ones where it, it felt as though the the story had to be told, and that the television was the natural place to do it. And for me, there was no there was no judgment call between the medium, um, but th- gratitude that, that the stories were being told. Absolutely. And the next grouping is the the commercial hits right up through Death on the Nile that you have done. I think that maybe people didn't see it coming in a way. I don't know if you saw it coming that let's say that's really over the last decade or so, starting with probably Thor, then 
Jack Ryan, Shadow Recruit, Cinderella, Murder on the Orient Express, and then, as I say just now, Death on the Nile. These are, uh, you know, how did it come about that, let's say, starting with Thor, how does how do you and Marvel find each other? <laughs> well, um, you go back to Belfast for the, the 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 single simple clue, which was that I was exposed to comics when I was a kid, including right. including Thor. There's um, a little uh, Easter egg in the movie. Yeah, yeah and, and and it was true. It was true. And when these flashes of color from comic book magazines came across our eyes, they were dazzling. Cut to two thousand and eight. And um, I had made three films year by year, uh, The Magic Flute, uh, As You Like It for HBO Films, The Magic Flute for an independent um, um, company and Sleuth for Castle Rock. And none of them had found an audience, let us put it like that. Yeah. You know, some, some were savagely reviewed, <laughs> some were just uh, found an indifferent public. Right. But uh, I'm as proud of them as any film I've made, and, but I, there was no audience to be had for the work that I wanted to do. Um, and so I was adrift slightly. I was working in the theater happily. I knew I wanted to make movies, but I did want an audience. And then I happened to Robert Newman, my directing agent who took me on at that time, had always passionately believed in my work and tried to find me uh, many years previously and kept coming. Eventually I said, okay, I've never had a director's agent, but there you go. And he, so it was him who sent a note one day. Uh, it was back, I had a fax then. Can you imagine if it was a fax? <laughs> a fax came through one day. Would you ever be interested in making a film of Thor? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I would. So a long process began where the still emergent MCU, which was on film number three, if you can imagine mm -hmm. such a thing, after the gigantic hit of uh, Iron Man, uh, the slightly, for them, underperforming um, Hulk, and or that version of, and then in parallel track, Captain America and Thor, the four pillars of the first stage of that universe build. And no film more worried about than Thor. A man who looks like Fabio uh, dresses in uh, garish colors, rides a horse over a rainbow bridge in space <laughs> to get to the nine realms. How are we gonna, how are we gonna make that one work? Well, they needed somebody, maybe back to this other thing we were talking about, we're talking about the Olivier inspiration, him as a gamble. I think they looked to somebody who was going to have the, who was going to enjoy the gamble of that, who was not going to be frightened by. So it's it's costumes that could be out of a Shakespeare play or a or a Viking myth or whatever. But yes, we've somehow got to get him into the contemporary world. And I think they knew they were taking a risk, but they 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 also knew that I delivered films I'd made. I don't know, maybe I don't know, fourteen then by then. So they knew that I would be able to make a film. And in fact, I was so confident in my relationship with them that two weeks after we finished filming, I showed them a rough cut of the movie. I didn't need to. I had my 12 weeks director's cut, but I liked them well enough. And, um, and I remember at the end of that screen, Kevin Feige standing up, turning around at me and saying, well, we've got a movie. And we know we've got a movie. <laughs> and and, um, and they left me alone for a lot longer as a result. Wow. I mean, they, re they, they, were, they were happy. Um, I think we were... I was encountering Marvel when, frankly, I recognized, hey, we could do the show right here. Yeah. <laughs> um, so as you know, so these are, these yeah, are, um, these are my people. <laughs> these are my people. And, uh, but then 
a friend of mine, David Barron, who was one of the producers of the David, uh, the Harry Potter franchise along with David Heyman, um, he'd said to me, look, you can do one of these films. You should do one of these films. I've now made lots of these. I know, and I've worked with you many times. You, you can, you are sort of made to do one of these things. So Thor started it. And then, um, but I was too um, kind of close to the glass with that character and everything to go straight back into one. So they kindly released me from an option, which they had, and uh, for which I thank Kevin. And uh, and then these other opportunities came up, which were real surprise ones. Um, and one of the most enjoyable was Cinderella, um, because I felt that that was a sort of um, quietly revolutionary take on this story. Um, uh, to find a, a, a version of it that did not render the central character a victim and indeed had a sort of spiritual a su superiority or, or sort of um, elevation at the end when even though having suffered at her hands, she could say to the stepmother, I forgive you, that that in itself was quite a big thing to do at the previews. You know, a lot of people did not want that line in. A lot of people in their comments cards said, that she ought to get it, <laughs> stick that that wicked stepmother. But I think uh, it was important to quietly put that remark in. And that led to a lot of, I think, conversations between parents and children about whether that w there was the right thing to do. So that brings up all sorts of things about, you know, well, why do you, how do you, why do you, how and well, how and why do you respect people who have done, done you wrong? You know, and, and these are complex issues. So I think also all of the craftspeople there, Sandy Powell and, and Dante Ferretti and, and Harrison Balucos, they did amazing work. And you're, uh, you turn out to, uh, not that this is a surprise, but a great talent scout at Richard Madden, uh, Lily James. I know you were going to, did do theater as well with Lily. I think Richard had to bow out or something, but that was, I mean, these are, that was, it, it was a, uh, as, artful a commercial project as there can be probably right well we were very a lot of things came together but disney took a lot of big risks on casting those people and trusted me emma watts who later came to uh, run 20th um, century fox when i did murder there and then was involved at the beginning of nile um paid me a big compliment she said you know there was a piece of casting that came up and i said here's another person you haven't heard of she said they're in we trust you. You know how to do it, you know. Um, and Kevin Feige trusted uh, me with Tom Hiddleston and Chris Hemsworth. And uh, it wasn't just my decision. Of course, it wasn't just my choice. But uh, they needed to know from me that the depth of performance was going to be there. And, and I, I, I felt as though I had a, a good... Uh, it's always going to be an act of faith, a leap of faith. But uh, I knew that these people had something special. So, I've, I, And that's always given me a huge amount of pleasure, I must say, because... Uh, it's great to see people emerge like that. And is it, do you find it's more of a challenge to put a personal stamp on those bigger ones? I know that with yes. Thor, for instance, though, yes. it, it, I mean, <laughs> I would assume it's yes, but on the other hand, I take, for instance, the, the I don't know what you call canted frames or whatever of Thor, that's... That's not very uh, conventional. I was so happy that we got away with that. I do know, um, and uh, I say this with a twinkle in my eye, that Marvel for sure in post-production checked out how much it would cost to horizontalize those shots. <laughs> and it, I'm pleased to say that the budget was so prohibitive they that they stayed it. in. For me, it couldn't have been simpler. Uh, look at a frame of any comic book and see the dynamism with which the the, the, the shot is composed. It's often on an angle. And uh, and and this was part of me evoking a, a comic book world it was that was the 
the chief way in which in that movie, aside from the way the acting was constructed and performances, because I'm very proud of the way that Hopkins and Hiddleston and Hemsworth all gave a sense of a complex, sort of deep family struggle between these two sons and the father. I was pleased about that. Natalie Portman, I loved working with. But I liked that visual scheme. It felt very particular. It, it felt um, it had to some extent, some some proper originality, which I was proud of, and I'm glad. I think it still holds its own. And just in case anyone thinks that your uh, drive had had decreased over the years since you were in your 20s, you know, driving yourself so hard, you were doing posts or supervising posts on Thor while giving your eventually Oscar-nominated performance in My Week with Marilyn, right? <laughs> I, I, I must say, I take my hat off to Marvel for um, and, and to the producers of My Week with Marilyn, including David Parfit, who was one of the producers on on Henry V, um, and and Frankenstein, and much ado. They worked hard with the schedule, but um, that was when Marvels. I mean, I listen. I work hard. No one works harder than the people who run Marvel. So Kevin uh, Kevin Feige, Luis de Esposito, Victoria Alonso, that group, and and all of their their key co-workers. Are amazing. So, for instance, although I could be, I remember doing a day's filming as uh, Laurence Olivier, and I finished at eight o'clock in the evening. I remember at ten o'clock that evening sitting in Patrick Doyle's music studio at Shepperton Studios with Kevin Feige, who had just finished supervising some bit of Captain America, and we were listening to the music at ten ten o'clock at night. Uh, some of Pat's cues, and I thought, me being able to dovetail this is, I'm just slipstreaming Kevin Feige, who is, I, I don't know what he's made of, but it's it's a work ethic that is uh, astonishing. So they understand stood and as Victoria said um, when they said yeah you can go do that they said you're very responsible so it's <laughs> it's okay so this this brings us to the home stretch and I of course want to have our final chapter be about Belfast which has you know been so well received and let's go back though to the start of the pandemic for a lot of people the pandemic lockdown meant pajamas and take you know delivery of food and just kind of enjoying being away from work, you went to work. Why was that the time that you, why do you think it was that you chose that time to uh, finally revisit your own story? I think that uh, there was time to write that I hadn't had in the same way before. And um, I felt essentially it was the atmospherics. Life was so uncertain and um, so many people were in touch by telephone and, and, and by email who I hadn't seen for a long time, wanting to reestablish contact. Many people did this. We all felt that we needed to sort of try and hold on to who we were because we didn't know whether we'd be making films again, whether how the economy was going to go, how the world was going to recover. We were a pre-vaccine world. There were so many mysteries. For me, um, yes, reaffirming those friendships, but going further than that and sort of wanting to finally, finally, finally reaffirm who I was. Um, some of what we've been talking about is is these um, sort of masks and escapes into other kinds of worlds and characters, but they all come from a DNA of a very particular kind that was set in the north of Ireland in the 60s. And um, I left there because of another period of intense uncertainty. So the time to write and the the parallel atmospheres and and a sense, I suppose, that 
part of the unknown was just how much time do we have? This mm-hmm. is a moment to write this story if I can. And in the first instance, it was to write the story. I didn't know whether we were able to make the story, but to write the story, show it to my family, see if they approved, and then let's see three months from now whether there's a, a way of making films during the pandemic. So it, it um, for me... It was a useful discipline. I got up every morning early. Uh, I walked to the bottom of the garden. I got in my little hut, and I was there for three or four hours, and um, and it, it it started to to pour out. Was it cathartic? Did you learn anything about yourself that you didn't realize prior to that? It was very releasing. I would say it was very liberating to um, go back and shake hands with the nine year old and. Um, to try and understand a little about the challenge that my parents had, because I think I've always had the thought about, well, what if I had stayed in Belfast, what, or at least for um, a while, or even all the way through the Troubles, and many people did, and um, I wonder whether I would have become a different kind of person, had a different kind of living, all of those things are possible. But um, there was something about what it set me up for before the Troubles hit that I think was part of what you know, the rest of my life um, owed, you know, the uh, um, the delight in the oral culture of the street, storytelling and, and joy found as swiftly as it possibly could, even in the grimmest circumstances, a resilience. We've talked about that in terms of just career, determination to bounce back was and not indulge or, you know, become too self-absorbed with personal troubles. I mean, one of the reasons this, this, the story wasn't written until this point was that our family never spoke about it, I think, considering that um, such things would, would amount to indulgence and would amount to a sort of disrespect for people who have much, much harder times than we ever had. Um, and while I don't make claims for the, the story being, as it were, more tragic than this experience or that experience, it's just my experience. And, and from it, there are areas of recognition and empathy that I've learned to understand from people who've seen it that are valuable, as I've always found, listening and, and receiving other people's stories. So I felt that being at peace with that, being at peace with the value of one's own contribution and one's own um, beginnings, to, to, and to, to understand, I think, just how utterly bewitched I was by a, uh, a form, cinema, uh, that I received simply for what it was, unalloyed entertainment grabbing, grabbing me and my imagination. It is still now a source of wonder for me to be sitting talking to you with seven Oscar nominations mm-hmm. for the story of the boy who watched the place that produced these films and the Academy Awards and everything. To, to have sort of got from there to here is uh, mind-blowing. So, And your parents are, are gone now, but they did see your success, right? They saw a lot of um, the, the, the good fortune we've had, including a memorable trip to the White House, courtesy of Jack Lemmon, who was honoured in the Kennedy Centre Honours, and I was asked to speak about him that year. He'd been in our film of Hamlet. And so my parents both, I remember them, all, all, almost falling over. They were so shaky with nerves about entering the White House. And my mother turned to me and said, my God, it's a long way from York Street. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was. And then they met the Clintons, who were the incumbent uh, <laughs> right. couple at that time. And they 
I thought I saw them levitate when they exited the room from having just met the president and the first lady. Who, uh, uh, you're being humble, said... They said, oh, we love your movies. <laughs> they said, we love your movies, in fact. And they turned us around, so they got a... We, we, we had a different... That's uh, great. We had a, a more of a family photograph rather than this, this sort of uh, uh, two-shot profile. Um, and no, that's been in the loo for a long time, actually. Um, no, they saw... A lot of things that that uh, were as astonishing for them as it as it is for me. And just you know, people should just remember thirty five days or so in the middle of COVID with a nine year old who's never acted really in a film before, who literally at the beginning, I guess she had to tell not to look into the camera. It's true. Um, and then connecting the dots back thirty five years, also with Judy Dench. I mean, it it and even obviously further back with the story. It's it is a, a pretty incredible thing, and I I guess I wonder just what you've made of how affected people are when they come out of it. I think it's it's not a self indulgent movie. I think what is it ninety six minutes or something? Correct. Yeah. Um, people are uplifted by stuff, you know, just coming to mind right now, the everlasting love and all of that, the family uh, unit there, but also very left, very moved by the final scene with, with Judy Dench watching them go. I guess, what can you pinpoint why you've done a lot of great work, but this seems, I would say, more than most things anyone will do has affected viewers. Why do you think it is? Um. It's hard for me to know, but I feel as though the release for me in making this film was to have no, nothing in between me and the um, emotion of the of the situation. And the I knew that to write the story would be to make myself super vulnerable. And life had taught me that there's nothing wrong with that, and some sometimes it's quite helpful. You you don't aim for it. You're not trying to sort of willfully expose yourself, but you're trying to employ a level of honesty about simple things that many people have experienced. So the crossover from innocence to more grown-up times in one's life, which are often bumpy, uh, the difficulties that you witness sometimes in your parents' relationship. And at this end of life, you look back and, of course, they seem very, very young. Um, and uh, everybody's kind of making it up when it comes to parenting. And um, and then you, you, you also chart something that, again, every viewer of the film will have to deal with, which is their own relationship to loss. Uh, the loss of innocence, or sometimes it's the loss of a place, a home, a town, when people move, um, loss of an identity. Um, again, that that sense of being taken from somewhere one belongs can be something that stays with you for a long time. And then ultimately this sense of um, loss about about loved ones. Um, I've always, I think, like anybody, just it's a... Uh, um, to quantify the sort of ache that occurs when you lose someone you love, um, even if it's expected, it's just, uh, as they say, it's one of the things in life, death and taxes. Both of those <laughs> things are in this movie, actually, That's death right. and taxes, <laughs> the only things in, in life you can be certain of. And uh, dealing with loss as honestly as you can, maybe, maybe, Maybe that's what's what's got to people, or maybe in in the world we're living in, the act of just saying, you know, um, I don't mean to sort of 
um, be blowing any trumpet here, but because it's sort of trying to describe what 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 the thing was, the act of honestly saying um, that this is me and this is my story and I I offer it to you, and you do so, it, it came sort of directly from the heart, and I think that it's it is it is been experienced by a lot of other people in their in their own hearts with this instant for so many people who speak to me about it this instant direct route to their own experience the numbers of times people have come up to me to say oh my god that's my story or that's my parent or i did that or i heard that or it reminded me of the time so a personal story seems to have become very very personal for many of the people who've received it Last 30 seconds. When were you last back on the street in Belfast? I didn't go back to the street that I lived in this last time, but I was back in Belfast in November for the Belfast premiere of um, of the film. And it was a very emotional evening for 1,400 people at the Waterfront Hall in Belfast, uh, uh, narrated and hosted by a wonderful Ulster comedian called Patrick Keelty, who lost his own father in the Troubles and who spoke very movingly about it, and for whom the film was very personal. And um, there was a tremendous sense of uh, pride in that audience that night. And for me, it was a very, very overwhelming um, experience. What became of the girl with whom? The, <laughs> <laughs> this is like there's the line in Citizen Kane, right? The girl with the white parasol. Uh, I saw her once. Uh, she did, but everybody wants to know. Have you? Uh, what happened? No, I've, now quite a number of people you might be interested have been in touch with me um, from Belfast, who either grew up in that street with me, who commented on the film. They've been very positive. They've told me things I'd forgotten about, etc. But I haven't heard from her, and um, can we put her? Can we put her name out there? Is I can't. That, no. no? Okay, okay. Okay. I feel okay. like I feel like the karma of the movie. <laughs> okay. She didn't ask to be yeah. in it, as it were. So she perhaps she wouldn't even recognize herself because, frankly, I used to wait outside that house across the street there, and she never did come to the window. Right. You know. Right. Um, but um, I was absolutely pottily in love with a beautiful blonde girl and uh, Olive Tennant who plays in the movie does a, a beautiful job but I always felt that she was um, the world for me divided then between uh, literature and maths <laughs> and she liked the maths guy yes. <laughs> um, but I've been working on that disparity ever since and lastly if that terrible day had not happened on the street that the catalyst for your film and a lot of your life um, where do you think you would be right now I suspect I might be in the north of Ireland, you know, living by the sea um, and uh, uh, writing. I imagine that that, that that Ireland certainly invites you to and opens up to anybody who can string a few words together. And I think that that might have been where I was headed into uh, the great um, the great tradition for so many thousands of, uh, of Irish artists uh, yeah, I sometimes wonder what it would have been like. Well, thank you so much for your time and absolutely love the movie. So appreciate the chance to talk to you about Thanks it. Thanks a lot, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. Until next time, thanks for joining us.